We just came off of Revelation chapter 21, and as we came off of Revelation chapter 21, we began to discuss the new uh, Jerusalem and how God was making all things new, and we began to look at um, the different dimensions of the new Jerusalem. We looked at how it's going to be like, the different... um, pearls and, and, and stones that make up the new Jerusalem. Um, we talked a little bit about what's going to be happening there in the sense of the Lord and the Lamb being its light, how there's no darkness. We talked about the gates. They're always open, how many gates there are, the names that are written on those gates, the foundations of the new Jerusalem gate um, walls and whose names are going to be on those. We talked about the glory of the new Jerusalem how there was going to be no temple in it because the Lord God Almighty is actually it. He doesn't need a temple there. There is church service, church presence of God all the time. He is the temple, the Lamb of God. It doesn't need any sun. It doesn't need no moon to shine. He is the one who illuminates it, the glory of God. Um, The nations of everyone who is in the new earth and who is saved will be coming in and out of the new Jerusalem we discussed And they will be coming to bring glory and honor through the gates and into the new Jerusalem. Um, And nothing inside, okay, nothing can enter the new Jerusalem. Um, We ended that with that. Remember that? In chapter 21, nothing shall enter it that defiles the Lord. Nothing that is abominable, not a lie, Nothing, no one whose name is not written in the Lamb's book of life. If, if your name is not written in the Lamb's book of life, you can't enter because those people we talked about at this point are in the lake of fire. And right now, um, the New Jerusalem is a place of hope, of peace. Um, it's a place, like we talked about last week, that's going to just blow our minds. So if you're here, as we continue the New Jerusalem and some last little um, statements by Christ... I would encourage you guys to go back to our podcast, Good News. All of our podcasts are up to date from all of our Sundays for like the last seven weeks. (laughs) We only had up to part four of the end. So now we have part five, six, seven, eight, nine, and ten. Today's part 11. So go back to part 10. Listen to the New Jerusalem as we described it. And after you hear today, you could go back and listen to it. So if, if you didn't catch last week, you're going um, fast forward and then you have to rewind throughout the week to hear um, right before it. Um, good news and, 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 and I'm not going to say bad news. Good news and sad news. Good news is um, hopefully by today we will end Revelation 22 and, and end the book of Revelation, end the last book um, of the Bible. And not only that, uh, but the sad news is uh, we're done and we're done with the end series. And that brings me sadness. How cool to spend 11 weeks in one topic. How cool is that, man? So, we find ourselves now in chapter 22, verse 1. Remember what happened. Let's see if any of you guys remember. The angel of the Lord showed up to John, and what did he do? In chapter 21, he what? Took him by the what? There you go. He took him by the Spirit, and he took him up to the what? Mountain of? Mountain of Zion. Mount Zion. Mountain of God. And there is where he's showing him the vision. 
on Mount Zion, this heavenly mountain, he, there is where he sees the new Jerusalem that is coming from God and is falling down. And here is John, and he's like, whoa, and he's writing all these revelations down by detail, man, all in chapter 21. What happens is, now we jump into chapter 22, and in chapter 22, he continues with that in which he sees from this revelation that Christ um, shows him, or the angel shows him. Now, what's important is, why is John caught up in the Spirit as he's writing Revelation 21 and 22? Because what he is seeing is a what place right now? It is a what? A holy place, an eternal place, right? Eternity. It's the supernatural, eternal place of God. So no mortal man could, the Bible says that no mortal man could see the face of God and live. So what happens is, John needs to be taken by the Spirit to this place because if you take him by the flesh, I'm not sure he would survive it if he would go in the flesh. So we know that he's in the Spirit seeing this amazing, eternal, holy, majestic place that one day, God willing, everyone will one day, when I say everyone, us, the believers, will one day be reigning and ruling in the new Jerusalem, kicking it, hanging out, worshiping, glorifying, seeing eye to eye, face to face with Jesus Christ, our Lord, and his glory. Wow. Can't wait. So now we continue with that, and we find ourselves in verse 1 of chapter 22, and he says, and he also showed me, he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Pretty amazing. Um, as we look at this, he showed me a pure river, a river of this water of life, clear as crystal. And it's flowing. And notice where this water is flowing from. It's a river that is flowing from where? From the throne of God. I love how there's scriptures that Christ says, come to me, come, come, come to the Lord, because he gives you what? Come on. Rivers of living water. Like bubbling springs, water that is alive. So how cool is it that in chapter 22, verse 1, he is seeing that which Jesus says to the people, if you just come to me, I give you these waters. Well, why does Christ give water to people? So that we will never what? Remember the Samaritan woman at the well? So we will never thirst again. But that phrase is more than a physical thirst. When Christ says he gives us rivers of living water, this bubbling spring that you will never thirst again, it is a spiritual thirst. For us, maybe that we don't understand that because our thirst has been quenched by Christ and it is continuing to be filled by Christ. But to a people that are outside of Christ, they go to all these different water fountains to receive water so that they could be filled but they always leave empty. There's only one fountain of water, one source that we could drink from that gives rivers of living water that it's flowing. So here is John, and he sees this river of water. But I love this. It's not a water of death. It's water of life. So what is flowing from the throne of God? Life is flowing. Nothing that is dead is flowing from the throne of God, but life. And then the water is clear as crystal. I love this. 
you know, the Garden of Eden uh, describes um, this place of true paradise in the Garden of Eden, a, a beautiful place. Um, and there was a river, if you even study in uh, Genesis 2, verses 10 through 14, there was also a river in the Garden of Eden. But the Garden of Eden was just a shadow it was, it was just a mere shadow of the true paradise of God, which is the new Jerusalem. That's all it was. Like you can't even compare the Garden of Eden to that of the new Jerusalem. So there was a river in Eden, as we see in Genesis 2.10. And what's very important is there's now a river in this throne room of God. Now, the river of life... Um, Clear as crystal, it flows. Now, why would it be crystal? Well, the only reason why I could think of something being crystal and described as crystal is because it's showing us that the waters are what? Unpolluted. It's not polluted. It's pure, it says there. And that's a, an amazing thing. It's, it's pristine. It's pure. It's unpolluted water. And it gives life. If you've been on a mission trip, like we have to... Um, Brazil and uh, Haiti, I mean, you should see the water that they drink from the Amazon. They get scapies all over their bodies because they're drinking polluted water and death comes upon them. Well, in the presence of God, what flows there is nothing but pureness, perfection, life flows from the throne of God. Amen? And that's a beautiful thing because don't, do we not live in a world of death? Okay, if you... Put on channel whatever news tonight, and all that they talk about is how many people got shot, how many people were slaughtered, how many people died in that car accident, how many person that guy walked into the house and killed. How, and it's just like, goodness, is there any good news in our world? It's almost as if the only thing that gets attention is, is darkness, is death, it's sin. Let's scare everyone, let's tell everyone. I love that in the New Jerusalem, it's like... None of that exists. Everything, the headline news is life. It's crystal. It's not polluted. Everything is pure. Nothing is perverted. Everything is holy. Everything is crystal clear. Everything is life. It's cool. I want to be there. I'm tired of being a place where it's only death. And then in verse 2, it says, In the middle of its street, on the, each side, on either side of the river, was the tree of life. Remember the tree of life in Eden? And it bore 12 fruits, and each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations, and, and, and we'll stop there for a second. So we go down this street of the city, and on each side of the river stood the tree of life. Now, he's going down the street of the city, so we see the description of this great city, the New Jerusalem. We see that there are streets there, and there's water flowing there. We're starting to see that it's, act, it's an actual living city. There's a heartbeat in that city. There's stuff happening within that city. Well, look, there's a tree, and it's fruits coming out. Things are happening there. In verse uh, what are you, 2, it says, on each side of this river, there was a tree of life. There's some fruit, 12 crops of fruit, and one fruit for every month, for the 12 months. And the leaves of this tree are for healing of the nation. 
you think about the, the, this tree in, in verse 2, the, the tree of life, and you start thinking about Eden. You start thinking about the tree that Adam and Eve were banished from. The tree that they were no longer to even walk by, that the Lord put a flaming sword around it and an angel on the other side that no one could enter and touch that tree again because they had eaten from it. Yeah, I didn't even think about that one. Ezekiel's trees that had leaves to heal. Yeah, I, I don't remember what chapter it is. I wonder if I have that passage here, if I wrote it in my notes. I wonder if I even touched it. I forgot about that. Um, in Ezekiel, where it talks about um, the tree that brings healing, um, as he's prophesying of the, of the New Jerusalem, of the kingdom of God. So, she'll see if she finds it. <clears throat> so, here is this tree, like the one of Adam and Eve that they were banished from because they ate from it. What would have happened to Adam and Eve? What would have happened to them if they would have um, never eaten from that tree? They would have what? They would have lived what? Forever. There was no death. Like we would still be with Adam and Eve. We would still be with Moses. It was, there would be no death. They would still be alive. But because they ate of this, Ezekiel 47.12, if you're writing that in your notes, Ezekiel 47.12, we'll go, I'll go back and look at it. They would have lived forever. They would have never received the sinful state that they received, sin that has cursed the world, the tree of life. They would have never done that. But here we find a, a tree in both sides of the river. Well, what is this tree symbolizing? And what could it be symbolizing? Well, we're going to look at how it symbolizes immortality. It symbolizes eternal life. It symbolizes that everyone will in, be enjoyable and will be blessed in the new Jerusalem. It says here, bears 12 crops of fruit. A fruit for every month, 12 fruits. What is this tree showing us? If it bears fruit and it continues to bear fruit for every month, that means there is a what that continues to happen? Yeah, it's forever. There is a continual supply. There's a plenty that is going on because of this tree. Again, we see symbolism of what? Life. When hell and the lake of fire is described, how is that described? Death, where they will be dying forever. Now we are in the New Jerusalem, and everything is symbolism for life. And then he goes on, and not only is it a bountiful or, or a continual supply for everyone, but then we see these leaves of the tree are the healing of the nations. Uh, don't believe that that means that there's going to be sickness in heaven, but we see that those leaves are a representation of a sustaining health that is found there. A place where no one could ever be sick. A place where no one could ever be ill. For all the nations of the new earth and everyone in the new Jerusalem, these leaves are representation of there is complete healing here. You guys remember the scripture? A place where there is no more tears, no more pain, no more suffering, scripture says. It's a place of healing and a continual healing that we never get ill again. What a place to be at. When all we see is people with cancer, AIDS, diabetes, my student with seizures. I mean, God says, not here. Here, everything 
is done with. Continual healing forever. I mean, that's awesome. And then in verse 3, it goes on and says, And there shall be no more curse, told you, no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. There shall be no more curse. The throne of God, the Lamb, will be in that city. The curse. So if I were to ask you guys, pop quiz, where did the curse start? How did it start? When did it start? What would be the answer? The curse of sin. What? Adam and Eve. Sin entered the world. But now we see that there will be no more curse that resulted from Adam's transgression. And that curse brought forth sickness, brought forth vanity, brought forth pain, stress, right? How many people live with filled with stress and frustration, anxiety, death? But now, Galatians 3.13 teaches us that Christ has redeemed us. And the fullness of that redemption, of that sacrifice, is now finally realized in the New Jerusalem. What, is the, what, what, what Galatians teaches us about the redemption of Christ, what is the realization of that redemption? Here it is, ready? That there is no more sin and no more curse in eternity with Jesus Christ. Because Christ has redeemed and done away with the word sin forever. My goodness. Like I read this stuff and I can't imagine a world without sin. Like I can't imagine me spotless. <laughs> I can't. I mean I should, right? I should be saying I should because in Jesus. But I'm just being honest. I can't. It's so amazing. And the throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city here. So we see that there is, the lamb is, is there and it's reigning and throne and his throne. And uh, I mean, what you're seeing there is a rulership. You, you, you're seeing there is a kingdom. What you're seeing there is God uh, being the head over all things that is happening here. But look what it says. There's a comma there. It says, his servants shall what? His servants shall serve him. That's amazing. So there's going to be people us, that will be in this eternal paradise, in this new Jerusalem, and we're going to be his servants. When you look up that word in the Greek, it literally means his slave, his bond servants, okay? And pretty much, as we've served God here in our earthly life, and as we're serving him here, and as we're worshiping and ministering here unto him, now in eternity, our joy and our extreme, or if you want to call it our chief joy, now, it's to do the same thing that we once did here on earth. And that is, like, we serve him here, but up there, we're going to serve him forever and ever, but every single moment of every single moment. Because I can't say second of every day, because there are not seconds of every day in eternity. It's just, and every moment, we're just going to be there serving him. What better thing to do than to be face-to-face -face with Jesus Christ in his glory and his light, constantly being his slave. I am cool with that. Constantly being his servant. Constantly being, Lord, what other word can I say to make your day today? What other thing can I do? Just think about what eternity is going to be like. In verse 4, it goes on to say this. The servants, they shall see his face and his name shall be on their foreheads. You guys catch that? They shall see his face and his name shall be on their foreheads. Now, 
In Matthew 18.10, Jesus says that the angels that are in heaven, he describes, are able to see the face of the Father in heaven. Jesus tells us that in Matthew 18.10. And scripture is very clear that mortal man, us right now, mortal man, cannot look at the face of God. What did God tell Moses? Moses, the day that man sees my face is the day that he will what? He surely dies. He's too glorious. He cannot look at the face of God and live. His glorious light is unapproachable. I want to read a scripture from 1 Timothy, if you're writing notes. 1 Timothy chapter 16, verse 15 and 16. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 15 and 16. Look at this. Which God will bring about in his own time, the blessed and only ruler, the king of kings, and the Lord of lords. I'm going to go on to the next one. And then it goes on and says, Who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see. To him be honor and might forever. Amen. Here is Paul writing to Timothy. And what he tells Timothy is, you, can, you cannot see the Lord. It's an unapproachable light that no one could ever see. I, I just told you about Moses. He wanted to see the face of God. But remember his request? Uh, denied. You can't. I'll fly through it. And if you're taking notes, you can write this. It's Exodus 33. And I'm going to read verses 18 through 23. Exodus 33, 18 through 23. Moses said, Now, Lord, show me your glory. Show me your face. And the Lord said, I'm going to cause all of my goodness to pass in front of you, and I'm going to proclaim my name in your presence. But I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. I'm in charge. I'm in control of all this. Moses, don't tell me what to do. (laughs) I know what I'm doing here. I have compassion. I have mercy on whoever I desire, Moses, but because you asked, right? Just because you asked. I will cause all of my goodness to pass in front of you. And I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. And I will have mercy on whom I have... Okay. <laughs> I'm just going to remind you who I am. I'm not doing this because you're telling me. I'm just telling you. I'm going to have mercy on who I have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. And this is... Uh, but he said, you cannot see my face. For no one may see me and live. For no one may see me and live. Let's go. Keep going. Then the Lord said, there is a place near me where you may stand on a rock... When my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock. I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. And then I will remove my hand and you will see my what? Yeah, you can't see my face. But my face must not be seen. And Moses like, but why? Because you're going to die. That's why. You guys remember the high priest? Anyone, not just a high priest. No one could enter into the Shekinah glory. No one. Into the holy most part of the temple, of the tabernacle, you couldn't. Only on one day, the day of the atonement, and only a certain way, and only one person. Anyone else died instantly. Couldn't. The glory of God, his unapproachable light, is too much. It is so much that Moses couldn't see it. It's so much that if you remember John, 
when John in Revelation chapter 1 saw the glimpse of Christ and his face shining, the Bible in Revelation describes how John fell like a dead man on the floor. How about Paul? Remember Paul? Paul was walking to murder Christians in Damascus. He didn't even see Jesus' face. He just saw light shine and he fell to... Like, guys, what can you see that possibly makes you fall to the ground? Like, think about that for a moment. Like, I yeah, but he's brighter than even the sun. Just, I want you to think about such a glorious, majestic presence and light that when it falls, you can't do anything. Like everything about you naturally just collapses. No wonder the Bible says that when he comes back, every knee's going to bow and every tongue's going to confess. Your, your tongue is not going to be able to say anything naturally because you know what? He created that. So when, when he comes, the, that thing in which created is just going to confess without them even knowing who he is. Every knee is just going to fall and collapse, and that's what happened to, to, to Paul. He collapsed. He, then he even turned blind, and that's that he didn't even see the face of God. It's, it's so important to recognize this. But now we get into the new Jerusalem, and what a privilege shall finally be granted to those in verse 3 and 4 who are called his servants. Everyone, go back to verse 4. His servants, they will what? They will see his face. I could do a whole preaching on this right, here, right now, but I'm not. But can you imagine the day that you could just see his face forever? And they will see him. First John, if you're taking notes, you could write this. First John 3, 2 says, and we will see him just the way he is. And we will see him just as he is. Like, I don't want to see him any other way. I want to see him just as he is. And 1 John 3, 2 teaches us that. They will see him. I'm going to read a verse, 1 Corinthians 13, 12. 1 Corinthians 13, 12 says this. Now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. But then we shall see what? You guys know what mirror he's talking about, right? Now we see a reflection of him as a mirror. He's talking about the Word of God. I see Jesus, but it's like a reflection of him through the Bible. It's pointing to him. It's, it's showing me who he is. But one day, we're not going to need a physical Bible because we're going to have the Word in the what? In the flesh. We're going to have him right in front of us. And here we find, in Paul writes to the Corinth church, we will see him face to face. I know in part... And I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Man, I'm going to know him fully, face to face. If you're writing um, notes, there's another scripture I could give you, and that's Exodus 28, 36, 37, um, and 38. It talks about something very important when it comes to this next point. Write this down. Exodus, uh, I'm not going to put it up there, but you could write it, and I'll get to Exodus 28, 36, 37, and 38. Just hold on to that in your notes. In verse 24, they will see his face. And then he goes on, he says, and his names will be on, his, on their foreheads. And the names will be on their foreheads. It's a very interesting passage because I don't know if you're going to literally have a brand of Jesus' name on your foreheads. But I love it because in your forehead, it's talking about your mind. And what's going to be constantly in your mind in the New Jerusalem is the person of Jesus Christ. His name 
is written on your forehead. It's an amazing scripture. We now belong to him as his servants. We are the servants of God who belong to him, but as it's written in our head, it's now openly known. There's nothing to keep secure or hidden to everyone that we are his property. Okay? Some people believe that this whole forehead thing is an illusion uh, uh, of, of, of some stuff that it talks about, of, and this is the verse that I gave you, and, and you could study when you get home. In Exodus 28, 36, 37, and 38, it talks about Aaron. And Aaron, this golden plate on the high priest. And do you want to know what this golden plate that the high priest would have? He would wear this thing, this high priest on this hat, and he would put it on his forehead. Aaron was the high priest. And this golden plate, this thing that this priestly garment that he would wear on his forehead, it was engraved with certain words, the high priest in the Old Testament. Do you guys want to know what it says in the high priest's garment on, the, on his forehead, the plate? It actually said, holy to the Lord. The high priest was holy to the Lord. What does the word holy mean again? It means what? Set apart, consecrated. Why was the high priest separated from all the other children of Israel? Because it was only his job to do the stuff of the temple and to enter into the Holy of Holies. So he was able to wear on his head what no one else from Israel's camp was able to wear. And what is that? I am holy to the Lord. No one else but me. I'm the high priest. Here we are now in eternity, and we're wearing something on our heads. And it's his name. What do you mean? Just like Aaron only belonged to God, he was holy to the Lord. Here I am with his name. I only belong to him. Isn't that cool? You could study that some more on your own. Exodus 28, 36, 37, 38, and how it matches with verse 4. Verse 5 says this as we keep going. Verse 5 says, And there shall be, and I'm not going to spend too much time because we went over this last week, there shall be no night there, there shall be no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. It's a repetition of what we've already stated in, uh, in chapter 21. And we see now this certainty of it. Why would God repeat something again? Why would John, sorry, repeat something again? Well, he's repeating it because it's for sure, it's certain. Night and darkness, what does that represent? That is the absence. When it's night outside, it's absence of light. When it's dark outside, light is not present. But now we see that every corner of God's kingdom will be filled with light. If you need more on that, go to last week's message. And they will reign forever and ever. They will reign for what? Yeah. Have they already been reigning? Absolutely. When have they been reigning? Let's see if you guys remember. Ooh, a few months back. The believers, the saints that are already his, were reigning with Christ when? Do you remember that big chunk of time? The millennial kingdom, a thousand years, they were already reigning with Jesus. But they went from reigning with Jesus, as we learned a couple months back or a month back, they went from reigning in the millennial kingdom to this millennium kingdom to now the eternal kingdom. And now they rule there and reign there forever and ever. They will never be transported to another place. It's there forever. We keep going. And verse 6 says, Then he said to me, These words are faithful and true. He says that again. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show his servants the things which must shortly take place. The angel said to me, these words are faithful and true, trustworthy, faithful, true. 
The angel affirms the truth of everything that has been spoken. Everything here is true because God is true. Everything here is going to happen because God is faithful. He is trustworthy. And then he goes on, and let's go to verse 7. And he says, Behold, I am coming quickly, and blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Behold, I am coming quickly. Guys, this is Christ's promise. You guys remember what he told the disciples? I'm coming. I'm coming back. I'm preparing a place. I want everyone to recognize this, and if you're writing notes, write this down. Verse 7, verse 12, verse 20, in one chapter. Guys, no lie. You heard me say this last week. You can't make this stuff up. The last page of the Bible, the last chapter of the Bible, verse 7, Verse 7, verse 12, and verse 20. He repeats himself three times. Behold, I'm coming quickly. Behold, I'm coming quickly. Before we close this book and say done and amen. One more time, ready? Behold, I'm coming quickly. He says it three times. He's emphasizing that he's coming quickly. So what he's emphasizing is that these things must soon take place. This stuff is going to happen. But blessed is he who keeps the words of this book, the words of the prophecy. Throughout the book of Revelation, John makes it very clear that what he is writing is is prophetic. It's a prophecy. And as he makes that clear numerous times throughout this book, the Lord says, blessed is the one who keeps this prophetic book. Blessed is the one who who learns it and studies it and speaks of it. Very important that we understand this. And then in verse 8, here's John, and now he says, Now I, John, saw and I heard these things, and when I heard it and I saw, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel who showed me these things. Real quick, is that good or bad? It's bad. Why is it bad? (laughs) Why is he worship? Dude, are you that fleshful? Are you that fleshful? Even while watching all this stuff that you still go down and worship a false thing, uh, an angel. <laughs> Let's stop. Let's not pick on John. Poor guy. He's having a rough moment of events here. He's seeing a lot, man. And he's all by himself, and he's probably hungry when he's seeing this. But let me think about, let's think about this. What do you think that tells us about the angel? That John does something like this. What does that tell us about the angel? What? There had to have been something amazing about that angel. That when John sees him, he's like, whoa. If the angel makes man want to just bow down and worship him, can you imagine standing before God? Before God. It's crazy. When I heard these things and I saw these things, this is the fifth and final time John says his name, I, John, I, John. It's cool because John is reporting it. Do you know the book of John? John never mentions his name not one time. In the book of John, he actually says, and the one whom Jesus loved. And the other disciple. He never says, and I, John. In his book, John, he never does. But in Revelation, (laughs) hey, I'm not lying to you. And I, John, (laughs) saw this. He's confirming this. And I, John, saw that. 
He was an eyewitness is what he's saying here. He's an ear witness because he hears it. And he's a witness of everything. And he testifies of all the truth and accuracy of this revelation. And when he heard and saw these things, he began to worship this angel who showed him all these things. It shows us how prone we are, as holy as man can be, to fall into sin again and again, and a sin called idolatry and worship false things. But there had to have been something, as John bowed down, this angel must have had a commanding, powerful presence, glorious presence to him. But I love what the angel says to him. Guys, look at verse 9. And then the angel said to me, See that you do not what? Are you guys there? Do not worship me. Do not do that. It's like saying what? Get up before God sees you. <laughs> you crazy? Do not do that again, John. He's screaming at him. Do not worship me. I love the angel's heart, by the way. It's not like, ah, I get recognized for, my, for all my good works finally in eternity. No, he's like, you better get back up. I'm not God. And he, could, he rebukes him. He tells John, don't do this. Don't, do not worship me. Uh, so important, verse 9. I'm a, and let's keep reading. He goes on, he says this, For I am your fellow servant, and I, and of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who keep the words of this book. They, listen, look what he says next. Worship God. Don't worship me. Worship God. Worship God. That's good. What the angel is telling him here is, you worship God and God alone. Do you know this is the second time that John almost worships the angel? The second time the angel had to be strong with him? How many times am I going to tell you? Don't worship me. Worship God. And then in verse 10 it says this, And he said to me, Do not steal the words of this pro- Do not seal, 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 sorry. Do not close, do not seal the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. Do not seal it, for the time is at hand. That's good. What is he trying to say? Don't hide this stuff. You need to what? John, you need to tell people. In the Old Testament, God would, angels would speak to some of the prophets like Isaiah and Daniel, and he'll be like, shh, people are not ready. Don't say it yet. But to John, he's like, what? Herald it. Scream it. Share it with everyone. Well, why do you think he wants him to share it with everyone? Well, it goes back to verse 7. It goes back to verse 12. It goes back to verse 20. Why does the angel tell him, go, hurry up, tell everyone? Because behold, he said, he is coming quickly. So you don't have time to shut up. You don't have time to be quiet. Tell everyone what you've seen and heard. And then in verse 11, it says, He who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. He who is holy, let him be holy still. There's a lot of debate about what this verse means. It could be a statement that it talks about the present human condition. Okay, the wicked are growing ever wicked, aren't they? As they goes. They're continuing to still be wicked. The saints, they should, and they are continually growing in righteousness, right? And holiness. It is no way, no way does this verse ever condone and encourage the continuance of wickedness or evil or wrongdoing. And I'll prove it to you why I know this. Because look at verse 12. Behold, I am coming quickly. Why would God say, hey, you could go sin now, verse 12, because I'm coming quickly? Does not make sense. 
What it's showing us is that people continue to continue to grow wicked still. And then there are saints that are continuing to grow in righteousness. There are some that are continuing to grow in holiness. And then verse 12, Behold, I am coming quickly. And as the Lord comes, what does he come with? Remember this whole preaching woof, months back? Behold, I'm coming quickly, and what's with God? Huh? My reward is with me. Guys, Isaiah 40, 10 is what is being quoted here. It says, See, the sovereign Lord comes with power, and his arm rules for him. See, his reward is with him. And his recompense accompanies him. The bride of Christ appears before the judgment seat of Christ at the time of the rapture, determines each one's rewards. In the New Testament, there are many references to rewards, to pay for everyone's services, for wages. And now he's giving to everyone according to what they have done. Their rewards. God pays back everyone for what he has done. Payback. Look at verse 13. As he rewards everyone, as he comes back, those that deserve rewards, look at verse 13. I am the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning, the end, the first, and the last. I am the definition of beginning. I asked my students this this week. What does the beginning mean? In the beginning. Oh, before time. Oh, before creation. It was before anything but God was created. God is the beginning. Like, so God was before you. He's like, no, no, I am it. I know. I'm not even going to get into that because you know what? We're going to go crazy. But there is no beginning. God is the definition of beginning. And just like he is the definition of beginning, he's also the definition of what? End. So there's nothing after him. He is what holds, the Bible says, all things together. He is beginning and end and everything in it. You can't say God was after you. God's what was before you. What created you? He's going to be like, huh? Uh, no, no, no. I am the ultimate creator. Nothing creates me. Okay? So it's, it's, I don't know. You don't know that. We don't live in a world like that. We don't get that. And then in verse 14, he says, Blessed, blessed are those who do his commandments that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. Blessed are those who do his commandments that they may have the right to the tree of life and enter into, into the what? To the gates, into the city, sorry. Again, he's blessing people. And anyone, anyone that is entering the holy city, they're blessed and they must be pure. They must be obedient. They are washed by the blood of the Lamb. They are cleansed through the water of His Word, Scripture teaches us in Romans 8. And they will have the right to the tree of life. They will go through these gates of the city. I love that they have the right to the tree of life. That phrase is better understood as they have the freedom or they have the privilege to the eternal kingdom. They have been granted free access to the tree and into the city. That is why the Bible describes that when in Matthew 24, when all the nations appear before God, he begins to separate the goats from the lambs, from the sheep, and he tells all the goats what? I was naked, I was thirsty, I was hungry, I was in prison, and you never what? You never fed me, you never gave me a drink, you never visited me, depart from me, you're going to hell. Then he goes to the sheep and he said, you guys, you saw me what? Naked and you clothed me, I was in prison and you visited me, I was thirsty and you gave me a drink, I was hungry and you fed me. And he says what? Welcome and enter into, see that? 
Well done, good and faithful servant. What is God telling the sheep? Everything behind this gate is what? It's free game. It is yours. You have the right, you have the privilege because you've done these things. It's been granted to you. You have free access to everything that I've been giving you here. But look what he says next in verse 15. I open it. Ready? like this verse actually. But the outside, in the outside, there are dogs. <laughs> the dogs are outside. And then they made a song about these dogs. It says, but outside are dogs and they're sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and whoever loves and practices a lie. Where do those people live, guys? Where do they live? They're outside. This makes a lot of sense to a Jewish person because a Jewish person, person used to live in a city. And in the city, whenever someone had leprosy or whenever someone had a discharge, whenever someone had something that was considered according to the Jewish law as impure, they would be outcasted outside of the city walls and they lived with all the bums, with all the nasty, rotten, disgusting lepers, people that were looked down upon. They were thrown outside of the city wall to an area outside called Gehenna, which is where it could be described as when Christ sends, and I send them out to the pile of Gehenna, and people say, well, hell is not a real place. What Jesus meant about when he described hell was the dump that was outside of the city that the lepers and the sick people used to be sent to. That's what hell is, and they twisted scripture around. But the truth is these people would be sent to some sort of earthly hell, a wasteland, a place that smelled, a place that disgusting people should be in. That's what would happen in Israel in these cities. But in the eternal kingdom, we are in his gates, pure, but the dogs, murderer, idolaters, sexual immoral, just like those in the New Testament, they're going to be outside the gate too, but not in the dump field of rottenness. They're going to be outside in another dump field called the what? The lake of fire. They're outside of the city. Hey, thank God there's no dogs in heaven. No, You know what I mean by dogs. Dogs return to their vomit. People that return to their sin. That's what that means. Scripture says. Not real dogs. If you're a dog lover, I was joking, man. I should not have said that. Sorcerers, sexually immoral, murderers, idolaters. I go too far. <laughs> Always do that. Everyone who practices a lie, all these people, all these people are gone. Everyone who practices falsehood, gone. They're already forever outside in the lake of fire. Look at verse 16. He says this, But I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root. Oh, I like this verse. I am the root and the offspring of David the bright and morning star. Guys, listen to this. Jesus is both the root and the offspring. The root means this, if you're writing notes. I am the ancestor. I am the ancestor. And then he says this, and I am the offspring of David. Well, what is offspring? I am the descendant. So Jesus has the ability to be the ancestor of David, and at the same time, he is the what? descendant it's a great mystery right of the incarnation do you guys remember when the pharisees began to question jesus in matthew 22 i have that verse in matthew 22 verse 42 through 46 you guys remember that he says what do you think about the christ 
Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. And then he said to them, How is it that, that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? If he is the son of David, if Jesus, okay, if the Christ is the son of David, how does David call his son what? It's like me calling my son Lord. Does it make sense? Look what God says here. For he says, verse 44, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Verse 45, If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one could say a word in this reply from that day on no more. No one dared to ask him any more questions. What Jesus was trying to say was this, I created David. I made David. I was his ancestor. Okay? And then he becomes the son of man, the son of David. Jesus goes into his human um, lineage and he traces it back through the tribe of Judah to find David here. And it's very significant now to know that in this final revelation of himself, he declares this one thing, that for all eternity, him, Jesus Christ, he is and always will be the son of David. Why is it so important for Jesus to tell the Jew that I am a son of David? I am his ancestor, but I am also his descendant. Because the Jew knows what? That the Messiah is coming from David. King David. And Jesus says, I am the creator of David, and through his seed, I came back. In the flesh. So I was before him. I was after him. Standing before you is the Messiah that you are rejecting. Wow, man. And that's what he is describing in this passage. He is the Jewish Messiah. He declares that he is and always will be the son of David. Why do you think the blind man, when he was walking through his town, screams what? Son of David! Caught Jesus' attention. Who calls my name? No one called his name. But they call this title, he is the son of David. That man traced Jesus back in his blindness, back to his lineage. Because he knew that if he cried son of David, and that man hears him and walks to him, then that man has to be the Messiah. And guess what? He healed him, rose up, and the blind man began to worship him. Truly, this is the Messiah. Why do you think he screamed son of David? I want to see if this is really the Messiah. Because if this is not the Messiah and I scream son of David, he's going to keep going. But the son of David came to the blind man after he screamed son of David. You remember that story, right? Shh. Stop saying that. And Jesus says, do not forbid him to shut up. I love it. He's confessing. He's professing my name. And then he says, he's the bright and morning star. This is no doubt a reference to the Messianic prophecy in Numbers. Numbers 24.17 says this. Numbers 24.17. Ready? A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. A star will come out. And Jesus says, I am the morning star. I am the star of Jacob. I am the Messiah of, we learned who Jacob is. Jacob is the nation of Israel. I am the Messiah of Israel. Cool? We cool? Look at verse 17, and then we'll fly through 17, 18, 19, 20, 21. And the spirit and the bride say, come, and let him who says, come, and let him who thirsts, come, and whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. Come, come, come. It's a beautiful thing. What you're seeing here is what? For the first time, something very special. That the Spirit 
the Holy Spirit and the Bride of Christ are united. And how do we know that they're united? Because they're both screaming, they're both crying out, they're both proclaiming the same thing. Everyone, what are they both all proclaiming, both of them? Come quickly. Come. Come. Christ has put it in their heart as the Spirit of God cries out, Come. So does the Holy Spirit who is filled with the Spirit and they become one with the Spirit of God and they're all crying out, Come. And this is a great indication if we are the bride of Christ. Is there a yearning in our heart that we are saying what? Come. Because notice what he says. I'm not making this up, guys. I'm not making this up. It says what? And the spirit and the what? Bride say what? There's a yearning that the bride wants to get out of here. The bride desires to be in his presence. The bride desires to get out of this earthly body, this earthly life. And this is an amazing uh, passage to show us and to let us recognize whether we are of the bride because we long for his return. And then he says this, and let him who hears say come. So there's still time for others. There's still time for others to join the Spirit and the Bride as they long for the return of Christ. And whoever is thirsty, let him come. Whoever wishes, let him take of the free gift of the water of life. I love what he says. Whoever. What a blessed word, right? It's a free gift of salvation, of eternal life, and it's available to anyone and everyone. But there's only one condition. Who is the one? Who is the one? Who is the one that receives the water of life? It's whoever is what? Whoever's what? Whoever's thirsty. One condition, are you thirsty? Only those who are aware of their spiritual dryness can cry, Lord, fill me. And Lord says, I'm going to give you the waters of life. Only those who are aware of their emptiness, of their thirst, of their need of the gospel and their need of Christ. What does Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 say? Come to me, come to me, all you who are weary And what? And heavy laden. What's another word for that? Burdened. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. But he doesn't stop there. He says, and I will give you what? But you got to what? Want it. Come to me. Guys, and we're done with 18, 19, 20, 21. And here we go as we end. For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in the book. I testify to everyone who hears these things. Do not add to these things. God's going to add to them the plagues that are written in this book. Very important as we look at this. He warns everyone who hears these words. Do not add to them. If you add to them, the warning is is very uh, strong here. The warning he gives to John. It's the same one found in Deuteronomy chapter 4 verse 2. You know what the Lord told Moses? Do not add to what I command you, and do not subtract from it, but you keep the commands of the Lord your God that I give you. So basically, make sure that you see yourself to do all that I command you. Do not add or take away from it. What is this passage teaching us in verse 18? Every word of God is from God, and it's inspired by God. Is that biblical? 2 Timothy chapter 3, 16 and 17. Every word of God is inspired by God. It is true. May we never dare to tamper with it in any way, shape, or form. 
any way, shape, or for, form. Look at Proverbs. I'm going to read Proverbs 30, 5 and 6 to you. Proverbs 30, 5 and 6 says this. Every word of God is flawless. He is a shield to those who take refuge. Do not add to his words. He will rebuke you and prove you a liar. Guys, do not add and do not take away from this book. How many people are out there preaching a the gospel that have added, have taken away from this book, and a lie that have added and taken away from this book of Revelation as well? Do not do that. Translated. Oh, right. That's, that's probably false. You have um, the Mormons. You have the Jehovah's Witnesses. And a few others that have had a supernatural so-called appearance. They said that it was God. And God told them to do away with this Bible and write this new Bible. Well, right then and there, these religious groups and these leaders should have known that the Bible says this. You can't add or take it away. And they should have known. And the Bible says to what? You discern the spirits whether they are from God. Just because someone says, thus saith the Lord, or just because a shining light comes upon you, does not mean that it is God. Because the Bible says that the angel, that Satan dis disguises himself as an angel of light. So I do believe it was something that supernatural that came upon them. It probably was a demonic spirit, probably was Satan, told them to take away this book and to add a new book which makes those religions and makes those books according to our scriptures, heresy, false teaching, and false doctrines. And they will receive the wrath of God according to this passage. Yes, sir. Yeah, I'm sure, man. Pedophiles. And... Yeah. Yeah. That's actually good. Yeah, absolutely. And there you go. Is that against biblical scripture? More proof. Good. Thank you for sharing that, by the way. More proof that that's not of God. I just don't understand how people don't see that stuff. Let's keep going as we end this thing. What verse am I on? 19, 20, 21. Here we go. 19 says, and if anyone takes away from the words of this book, of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life. Wow. From the holy city he shall take them away, and from the things which are written in this book he shall take them away. Not a good idea. Anyone attempting to discount or discredit the entire revelation given is in danger of losing his salvation. Don't mess with God's word, is what he's saying. Don't do it. Obviously, are they ever really saved if they're tampering with God's word? Then we jump into verse 20, and then it says this. He who testifies to these things, guys, again says, Surely I am coming quickly. This is Christ's third and final reminder that he's coming soon. And then it says, Amen. Even so, come. Come, Lord Jesus. This is the appropriate response of the church to Jesus Christ's promise of his return. So if I were to ask you guys, what is the appropriate response of the church of Jesus Christ when he promises to return? Your answer would be what? Come back quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen. And the last verse says, May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. And all of God's people say, Amen. You know what that word amen means at the end? The last, the last, the last word in the book. 
of his book says amen. What does amen mean? So be it. What does he end with? Guys, verse 21. The blank of the Lord be with all of you. The what? How cool is it that the last thing that Jesus decides to finish his book with is grace. You know what he ended Malachi with? Curse. The New Testament he ends the scripture with? Grace. The grace of the Lord, how fitting. It's the 404th and final verse of Revelation, and he says grace. God's saints are saved and transformed by his grace, and in his coming ages and for all eternity, he will be revealing the exceeding, surpassing, supereminent, incomparable riches and abundance of his amazing grace. And I end with this passage as we put it up. Ephesians 2, 1 through 9, and then we'll pray. And it's going to be up on the screen. And as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. It's a great passage. But because of his great love for us, God, who was rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. Did you just read that? Even when we were dead, he made us alive. It is by grace that you have been saved. And God raised us up from, with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith and it is not from yourselves, it is a gift of God not by works, so that no one could boast. Amen? Thank you, Lord, for your grace. Thank you, Lord, that your grace has saved me. Thank you, Lord, that your grace has found me. Thank you, Lord, that your grace has allowed me and will allow me to go and experience chapter 21 and 22 one day for the rest of my life. Lord, I really mean this with all my heart. We long and I long for your coming I long for the day that I get to stand before your presence forever and never leave. A time where all sin, all darkness will be removed from all of the people that you love. Where there will be constant light, where there will be constant life, and Lord God, where there is joy. Lord, I thank you for the, that promise that I get to reign and rule with you. Let my heart never grow weary. Let me never grow weary in doing good. Let me, let me never uh, lose heart and lose hope. But make me stronger, make us stronger in the days ahead, waiting for your great appearance, waiting for your coming. We thank you for 11 weeks, 11 weeks in the end times, 11 weeks learning about the things to come, and there's still so much more to learn. I pray that this has stirred something deep in us, something that would transform us forever, something that would cause us to long for you even more each day. I thank you for my brothers and sisters 
I strengthen them today. I pray blessing over their lives. I pray your grace may continue to strengthen, fortify, Lord, and, and lead them in that grace each day of their lives. Bless our families. Bless our homes. Bless this church. Bless our people. Bless your people. Let us all in all that we do give glory to you, Lord God. We love you. We exalt you in the powerful, holy name of Jesus Christ our Lord. We say, Amen.